0: Hello there, my name is Kathleen, and this is The Osborne Tapes, the re-release of the Analyst Corner podcast with Debbie Osborne. Today's episode is all about intelligence-led policing. Debbie hosts Dr. Jerry Radcliffe on the show, a former British police officer, professor at Temple University, and he's the host of his own podcast called Reducing Crime. Dr. Radcliffe has been a research advisor to the FBI and the Philadelphia Police Commissioner, and an instructor for the ATF Intelligence Academy, and he is a member of the FBI Law Enforcement Education and Training Council. This episode focuses on the true definition of intelligence-led policing and the common misconceptions from the public but also within law enforcement itself. Because intelligence-led policing isn't just about criminal intelligence but also a model about policing leadership, the conversation between Debbie and Dr. Radcliffe about decision-making models and chiefs utilizing analyst knowledge is helpful for anyone who is looking to gain a better understanding of the implications of intelligence-led policing as well as what it looks like in action. From limited funding resources to policing gang activity, this episode touches on all aspects of law enforcement and how to incorporate intelligence-led policing. So feel free to take notes during this one. So let's get into today's episode. Welcome to
1: Analyst Corner. It's September 1st, 2008, which is Labor Day here in the United States, and I'm Deborah Osborne, a writer and former analyst. Our topic today is intelligence-led policing, and I'm pleased to have as my guest Dr. Jerry Radcliffe, Temple University professor and author of the book Intelligence-Led Policing. You can find the book on the Analyst Corner page on Blog Talk Radio, and if you click on the book, you can take You'll be taken to more details about the book. The URL for Jerry's homepage, a website full of great resources, can also be found on the show's description. Good morning, Jerry. Thank you for coming on the show today.
2: Hello, Debbie. It's nice to be with you. Uh, Especially on Labor Day, you managed to find a foreigner. I take it all the the Americans were uh, otherwise engaged in parties.
1: Yes, and I believe you're at your vacation home, which is very nice, and I'm home also. Um, In and so intelligence-led policing is a topic that's dear to me and because it, it sort of summarizes in your book ideas that um, show the importance of crime intelligence analysts. And, um, and, but a lot of our listeners, some of our listeners are the general public and some of our listeners are in policing and, and still don't really have an understanding of the term intelligence-led policing. So could you give us a general overview of what intelligence-led policing is? Certainly.
2: The, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, one of the stories that you actually have on your uh, online blog um, about a group of blind men trying to identify an elephant by only feeling the parts of it. Well, sort of, I think intelligence-led policing is a bit like that, except for everyone can only feel the same part of the elephant. In other words, they see the word intelligence and they don't think about the other aspects to it. Um, if we wanted a definition, I mean, intelligence-led policing is a, is a business model and it's a managerial philosophy where where a combination of data analysis and crime intelligence and criminal intelligence are all pivotal to an objective decision-making framework that looks at crime and problem reduction or disrupting criminal activities or even crime prevention through both strategic management and also effective enforcement strategies that only go after really the prolific and the serious um, offenders. But, uh, you know, I'm sure some of the public would think that the police do that all the time, but that's not actually necessarily the case. Everybody hears the word intelligence um, in intelligence-led policing, and then they think they know what it is. But the, the real words they miss out are uh, the policing and leadership. So intelligence-led policing isn't just about criminal intelligence. It's really, it's, it's really a model about uh, policing leadership, leadership policing.
1: And, and what are the police doing, if, if you think the public which I also agree, agree with your idea that the public thinks we're already doing this, because I did before I entered the world of policing. What are the police doing that's not intelligence-led policing?
2: Well, it's funny. The, uh, the aspect that I mean I, I go and visit and uh, consult with a number of police departments, and often the part about the whole definition that is often missing is the objective decision-making framework. And you go to police departments, and sometimes you're amazed at how decisions get made. They're made on the fly. They're made on you know just off the cuff. And in actual fact, that's how we've often rewarded police officers. Police officers are often picked for leadership positions for their experience in making good, snap decisions at times of crisis. And that's really the, almost the antithesis of what we're looking for with intelligence-led policing, which is to integrate our crime analysis and our criminal intelligence and gather as much knowledge as we can about long-term crime problems and then make good decisions about what happens. So often that decision-making framework doesn't exist because police chiefs are just used to making decisions without ever having to speak to analysts or ever having to find out what's really going on with the criminal world from our uh, criminal intelligence officers. And so the the key part that's often missing is uh, this idea of, of... of finding some way to influence the thinking of these decision makers. So their decision making is less on the cuff and less just making it up as they go and much more sort of considered with all the information
1: available. And because we have mostly in policing done things by a case-by-case basis. So, for example, what would surprise me as an analyst is that the same drug corner could be the same drug corner for five to ten years, but... People would arrest different individuals, but the actual problem of the corner wouldn't be looked at so much. It would be looked at more as the criminal organization selling drugs, the particular street-level drug dealers, but not looking at the problem per se in a strategic manner. We don't see as much strategic thinking as one might think in in our modern-day policing for some reason. Um, you also created a model. Um, I know that you said you acknowledge another person in your in your book. It's also on your website of the three eyes. Some of our listeners are also in the U.S. intelligence community or have intelligence background from the military or other fields, and they know that they've heard of the intelligence cycle that often begins with planning and direction. Maybe not so much in local level policing, because in crime analysis, our our intelligence cycle or our crime analysis cycle doesn't actually have planning and direction in it. It would, it would have collation, um, collection, collecting the information. Then the U.S. intelligence, yeah. secu- U.S. security agencies would say exploitation, and right. um, yeah. we would have collation. And then the analysis part, dissemination, and some people have feedback. But the 3I model is a triangle, and one of the corners, the bottom left-hand corner has crime intelligence analysts, the other corner, um, the top has crim- the criminal environment, so you have the crime intelligence analysts interpreting the criminal environment. The crime and intelligence analysts go to the other corner, the decision makers, and the goal is to influence them. And ultimately, what in this whole model of intelligence led policing, you would like the decision makers to make an impact on the criminal environment. And can you right. speak a little bit more about the, that 3I model?
2: Well, you know, I, and this is where uh, <laughs> I'm sure many, many of your listeners, especially in the intelligence community, will be thinking that I'm speaking intelligence heresy at this moment. But I'm, I'm kind of a, a little underwhelmed by the, uh, the intelligence cycle because the part that's – and you can complete the intelligence cycle right the way through from uh, planning direction, right the way through to dissemination of the product – and have absolutely no influence on what's going on whatsoever and I'm sure many analysts if they're listening to this will, will recognize the times when they've produced many, you know, considered well thought through, um, well analyzed reports and it's had absolutely no impact or, on the criminal environment and actually no influence on the thinking of decision makers. Because the problem with the intelligence cycle I, I think is that the key part that's missing is where are the decision makers in that. And so. What well, the 3i model is a little bit more, <clears throat> excuse me, a little simpler in that the the, the analysts interpret the criminal environment. And you can use the intelligence cycle to do that if you want to. But it actually makes uh, additional requirements where the analysts have to go out and influence the thinking of a decision maker. And that, that is actually one of the hardest things to do um, for analysts because there, there are a number of, just in that simple process of, Uh, influencing decision-makers, there are a number of questions that come up. Who are the decision-makers? What is my decision-making structure in the organization in which I work? There's a tendency, especially in policing, for people to mistake rank hierarchy for a decision-making structure. We naturally assume that the people who can actually have an impact on the criminal environment, which is the last stage of the 3i model, are the people at the highest level. Um, The Though, or the people who are working on the street, the lowest level. So it's really unclear to many analysts where exactly the decision-making takes place in their organization. And so I suggest to people to always sort of look for the people who control and the direct the resources. But once you start doing that, you actually start to do more of this strategic thinking, which uh, you spoke about just now. Um, because once you start to look for the people who control resources that can actually have an impact on the criminal environment, you start looking outside policing as well. You start to look at mayors, and you start to look at city managers. So, I mean, at the first stage, I mean, there are a number of stages, but I think the first stage in trying to influence a decision-maker is actually trying to figure out who who, who the decision-makers are.
1: And for a working analyst in local-level policing, those decision-makers, the people they might influence are the the, the 20% of the workers who do 80% of the work in their agency, the detectives the street officers some of the leaders. Like
2: five, I suspect it's more like 5% to about 95 but there we
1: go <laughs> well the people they they see their names doing the work they can, the people who come to them more most often are some are the people they might want to work with most because they'll use their their, their products the materials and they'll get feedback and see if if what their analysis um, is providing is helpful to in the real world um, and I also think it takes Intellectual courage for analysts to break out of that mold that you just produce work and and just send it up wherever email it, print it out, post it, and you never you don't you don't go and really try to influence people, actual people in relationships. Oh. but we also speak to that September eleventh when you talk about national security that you know if if an analyst, the bureaucracy and the hierarchy problems of getting to the decision maker in local policing it's much easier, but in as we move up to state and federal policing and national security it's much more difficult to reach the decision maker even if you think you have an important fact that will make a difference
2: it, it, i mean it, it is it is this is clearly the hardest part of the the three i model I think especially for analysts is trying to identify and influence um, the thinking of, uh, of decision-makers. Um, you know, I know I say I visit a lot of police departments and, and go and, su- and suggest and give them advice on this area. And What you often find is that analysts find it easiest to try and influence the thinking of people at the street level. Um, but there's an amazing sort of resistance in, in policing at the street level, at the patrol level. It's very easy to take um, good, well thought through, analyzed products but just to be too tucked up and busy with the 911 response, the, or triple zero if you're in Australia, or 999 if you're in the UK. But it's very easy to get busy with all the busy work that takes place, and then there's really no um, supervision that, that requires you to, to make use of that product. So I would think that middle management of police departments are about the best level for analysts to think about, um, to think about influencing. They have enough power to be able to provide a supervisory function, um, they have enough uh, control of resources to actually change patrol strategies, move people around, but they're also still young enough in their career that they can think about um, that they're looking for the next big thing that will help them get promoted, the thing that will help them, you know, the, the leadership, um, notice those guys. So I think that middle management group are a good group to think about influencing. And the other thing that analysts can really think about doing is is really the approach of uh, less is more. Um, we, we look at- you, you see people sitting around with Blackberries. With you cannot sit in a meeting with police without their, uh, their Blackberry going off about 10 times during a meeting. And so people now are swamped with information. And sometimes giving people less that is more tailored is, is better. Um, with my colleague, Travis Taniguchi, um, we've been working in Camden, New Jersey, on a number of projects. And we've done some academic work, which has been 40, 50 pages long. But when we give it to the police, what we do is we give them two pages and a map, nothing more than that, short and simple. And what that does is it just targets exactly um, the the sort of key information that decision-makers need. And they'll read two pages, but they won't read 40 or 50.
1: One of the things that took me a few years to realize as an analyst was that people didn't want to hear about more problems or problems they didn't know about because they had so many problems. However, of course, down the line, some of my material got better accepted, but it took me a while to realize that that people were thinking in terms of being overwhelmed with all their problems, and, and, and that is the state of policing. But one of the difficulties in the United States for the implementation or possible implementation of intelligence-led policing is the structure of U.S. policing versus that of the U.K. and other countries. There are so many agencies. Can you speak a bit about that?
2: Well, this this is the, one of the hardest things. Certainly, you know, I came to the United States about six or seven years ago. The hardest thing to understand about the United States is is the, the incredible level of local political control over police departments. Um, it's it's quite astounding to me that the influence that that mayors and that city managers and that local politicians who who uh, you know were a plumber one day and then became a council member the next day have over policing um, and it's incredible that they, they they exert this amount of influence um, sheriffs have to get elected and politicians you know, people have to stay very politically astute so what you have is that policing is very embroiled in politics and because that's the case what you end up with is that you can often end up with a very low level of, uh, of, of sort of sophistication You, you it's you have experienced police officers, but they're, but they're and, you know, smart police officers, but they're trying to convey ideas and have to get political buy-in to um, a, a political body that's really uneducated in terms of um, long-term policing strategies. And, of course, that also drives a, a lack of interest in long-term policing strategies. Very few people are willing to invest in, in long-term crime reduction strategies that um, That will take longer than an election cycle to come in. So that's that's very that's very different experience for me from my time in Australia and the United Kingdom before that, where you had police officers, um, senior police officers who'd been in the same police department for 20, 30 years, or who were largely kept separate from the political systems. In other words, politicians come and go, but the police chiefs will remain. And that's just not the issue in the United States. So it's hard in terms especially for uh, analysts in trying to think about those long term problem roll into policing type of solutions to try and get those ideas through because some of them do take a long time and they take time, you know they, they're dealing with problems that have taken decades to to, to create uh, and that's, that's a very difficult component to, to, particularly to life um, working in policing in the United States
1: and when you say some listeners won't can't even imagine what kinds of problems would. Last for decades. What kinds of problems are we speaking about here?
2: Well, I was talking about working with uh, my colleague Travis Sanaguchi in Camden, New Jersey, um, and the drug markets there are some of the most established, dra- established uh, drug markets in the United States of America. I mean, there's, uh, uh, Camden is, pr- uh, is one of, if not the poorest city in the United States. Um, I mean, the, the, some of the, the figures for Camden are astounding. Um, you know, less than one-third of children entering kindergarten will ever graduate from high school um, uh, A fifth of the city lives, more than a fifth of the city lives in extreme poverty And extreme poverty was uh, was, was defined as a household of three with an annual income of less than $7,800 a year So I mean, some of these, these long-term problems of, of um, long-term poverty, problems with education, um, long-term lifelong unemployment um, have, have driven um, a, a, an environment where th- there is no investment in the city, there are abandoned premises, there, there are boarded up homes all over the place. It's an ideal environment. It's close to a, a major urban center. So it's an ideal environment for drug markets to grow. And some of the drug markets have been in the same locations for 20, 30 years. And this is a sort of long-term Deteriorating conditions that, that that problem-oriented policing is ideal for, but there's also um, a, a need for an intelligence-led policing uh, approach in terms of thinking about who are the key players that have to be targeted, so that the that the city can get that respite they need, so that um, other problems, so that they can start working on local solutions. I mean, in the end, in the end, we can't arrest everybody in Camden, but there are a few key people. That uh, their arrest and their prosecution, their removal from the local environment would certainly help uh, help the city start to restore a little bit of pride and dignity
1: and that speaks to that six percent that might benefit from that traditional intelligence approach where you gather intelligence on criminals, so maybe you can tell your the listeners a little bit more about that six percent of criminals we should be focusing on
2: well yeah I mean it'll be, it's an amazing thing that uh, today in the United States of America there are uh, million people incarcerated. So we've managed to fill the jails, and I think it's become hugely expensive to fill the jails anymore. So intelligence-led policing isn't just about going out and arresting absolutely everybody. It's about being much more focused. And it's about focusing on that 6% of the population that commit about 60% of the crime. There have been a number of long-term academic studies. I don't bore you rigid with the details with them because reading through them is pretty painful. Um, And they go to thousands of pages. But in deciphering all of that, it pretty much became clear to me that it was about 6% of the population commit about 60% of the crime. And that leaves you with two things. Firstly, there are a few key people that really should be incarcerated and locked up and throw the key away. But then there are still sort of 40 or 50% of the crime um, that is committed by opportunists. Um, People just not necessarily high, you know, we're not talking about Moriarty's and the high-profile criminals, we're just talking about people who are open to the possibility of committing crime, as many people are, uh, and who take advantage of an opportunity that's there. And that's where strategic management is built into the definition of intelligence-led policing, um, because it's that strategic management that helps you identify, really through things such as problem-oriented policing, for example, where are those weaknesses that people are exploiting, and how can we shut down those opportunities? And, of course, that's difficult for policing because that doesn't necessarily end in an arrest, and that's arrests are how we've always rewarded people. But what we're really talking about doing is just cutting down on the opportunities to commit crime. So it's really a two-pronged attack. Take out the key players, arrest and incarcerate the worst offenders, but also think about shutting down the opportunities for everybody else to commit crime as well.
1: In, in your um, work, you speak to the integration of crime analysis information and intelligence analysis information, and instead of having those two roles separate, although they might be for certain agencies or different missions, but that there would be crime intelligence analysts. Could you describe that a little bit? Because I think that's what I would like to see, but I don't know that I know that many people who, who really see the value of the concept because they're vested in keeping those two roles separate.
2: It's funny. I I was talking to Mark Evans, who was the Director of uh, Analytical Services for the Police Service of Northern Ireland, who's now also the the, uh, Director of National Intelligence for the New Zealand Police. And he was telling me that in Northern Ireland, they call all of their analysts police analysts. They don't separate between crime analysts and criminal intelligence analysts. Everybody is a police analyst. And the distinction that takes place between crime analysts and criminal intelligence people is is really only a U.S. thing. It it took me a bit of time to understand that when I came here. Um, And it astounds me that, um, that these things are kept separate. Though really what drives that separation is often a culture. And it's overcoming that culture that seemed fine in 1970 and is now really not appropriate for 2008. And when you're trying to explain the importance of blending these things t- together, blending crime analysis with criminal intelligence, which, is, um, w- which in the book I recommend, uh, you know, I use the term crime intelligence just to cover both of these things together, uh, is because I try and explain it to people, crime analysis will tell you what is going on. Criminal intelligence will tell you why. And I think if you're a city manager, I think if you're a middle-ranking police officer, I think if you're a senior police officer or a police chief, you need that complete picture to, to really have knowledge of what's going on and to develop some sort of sense of, of your own sort of idea, of your intelligence, as it were, of what is going on in your environment. A quick snapshot that, or even temporal patterns that will tell you something's you know, getting worse or something's better, crime analysis is great at tell, giving you an understanding of what is going on. It's that criminal intelligence will help you understand the underlying picture. For example, in, the, in, in our work in Camden, New Jersey, we, we've been looking at drug corners. The intelligence services office have uh, done a great job, and they can tell you um, every drug corner, every gang, which gangs are on which corners. In trying to figure out which gang we were going to target, um, instead of just selecting the, the first gang that was top of the list, it probably would have been B for Bloods, we, would, um, we actually tried to say, well, which are, which are the gangs that have the most violent crime around their corners? And so the only way to do that is to actually map crime around every single corner in the city and then figure out which gangs actually allow the the highest level of violent crime to be taking place around their corners. And for that, you have to mix that criminal intelligence on the gangs with the crime analysis on the violent crime patterns. And so I think that works as a fairly good example to show people why these two things really should be blended. But it's very tough to do when, you know, narcotics units want to keep all their narcotics intelligence to themselves and the street gang units want to keep all their intelligence to themselves, and none of them want to share with a crime analyst.
1: Do you see any agencies doing that in the United States? I mean, not to put you on the spot, but I'm just wondering, I, I know I, it depends, if you're in a smaller agency, sometimes you can facilitate that happening as an analyst because you can work with the intelligence officers, even if, maybe not formally but informally. But most agencies, it does seem to be quite separated in, um, where the intelligence people know about the criminals and the crime analysts only know about the crime incidents. So do you see that anywhere? Or do you, how would it look if it works? What would it look like for people who might aspire to that?
2: Well, I, mean, I, I think there are places that have really moved <clears throat> excuse me, really have moved forward in terms of thinking about this, uh, but it's taken them years because it's not only an organizational issue but there's also a cultural issue. Um, I think a good example is the police service of Northern Ireland. Um, I think they do a, a nice job of, of having analysts. Um, they don't have special intelligence analysts. They are special crime analysts on the whole. They have analysts, and everybody does every aspect of the job, and I think that's what they're trying to move towards in New Zealand as well. Some of the Australian police services do a good job of that as well. Um, and I think in terms of what it would, but what it would end up looking like, I think, I think the real beneficiaries would be, um, an intelligence-led policing is there really a top-down model uh, I think the real beneficiaries really would be the people who work at, at the senior and the middle levels of police departments who are looking at a range of crime problems and trying to figure out what's going on. So, for example, if a police department saw that uh, there were increases in violence in a particular area, well, you could go out and do saturation patrols, which is the traditional response to just about everything um, in the United States. Uh, but in the end, you know, the crime mapping will tell you, for example, where to go. But the criminal intelligence will tell you what's going on. I mean, it may be that particular offenders have just been released from prison and they're now coming back and trying to reestablish themselves in drug markets. It may be there's a neighborhood dispute. It may be gangs from outside the city are moving in. All of those, that understanding of that, 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 that criminal intelligence will hopefully give you that sort of deeper understanding as to why you're seeing the violent problem that you have and that deeper understanding allows for a more tailored response, a different type of response than the traditional one, and hopefully one that will be more successful in combating the violent crime problem.
1: Are there any things that intelligence-led policing wouldn't help in? Because I don't really see that. I mean, it seems to me, although we're talking about drugs and violent crime, it seems to me all crime problems could benefit from the intelligence-led policing approach. And so I would think some of our listeners would like to know what is its value? Why would I want this? And what, what, you know, what changes need to be done in order to implement this?
2: Well, I mean, I would I, I, I flip that, that question on its head and really sort of say, why wouldn't I want this to be done? What we're talking about really here is a model where um, senior police officers and middle ranking police officers and, 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 you know, of, of any size department um, are really trying to fixate and get the most information possible, the most analysis possible. And develop amongst them, within themselves the greatest knowledge of the crime problem they're tackling, so that they can make the most informed decisions. And if we're talking about limited resources, we're talking about policing costing a lot of money. Um, I don't, you know, this is really what police officers should be doing. This is it's straight out of sort of simple business management 101, which is. It's me mean, it, it like You talked a little bit about military analysts, and we have, uh, you know, the, the military have a long tradition of uh, getting as much information as possible, as much intelligence as possible about the, uh, about, the, uh, about the enemy they're facing. They want to find out troop movements. They want to find out where their resources are. They want to find out their weaknesses. They want to find out the strengths of the enemy's equipment. All that sort of thing. They get as much intelligence as possible before making decisions about going forward and, and how they're going to uh, identify the, the, the weakness that they can exploit in the enemy. And it's astounding that we don't do the same thing in policing absolutely astounding. So I mean, I think that's what we're talking about here, which is about a greater level of knowledge um, and a greater level of more strategic thinking and decision-making taking place amongst our police leaders. Um, who could not want that?
1: And I, I like to think of that as knowledge-based policing, but it does require that there be analysts or, or officers in the anal, analyst role in agencies, and many agencies still struggle with having quality analysts. Can you speak to how how important that is to that model?
2: Well, uh, first I'll tackle it you, you call this uh, knowledge based policing I, I, Where, where I'll, I have a slight distinction between um, using knowledge in policing and, and intelligence is that we have huge amounts of knowledge floating around police departments already um, and, and much uh, much criminological research that I generally don't have much time for um, it increases our knowledge of what's going on. But if it has an actionable outcome, then it's more than knowledge. In other words, if it actually provides some guidance as to having an impact, the last part of the 3i model for decision makers to actually have an impact on the criminal environment, then it takes a step up from being simply knowledge and it actually becomes intelligence. So I think you know, intelligence is, is knowledge designed for action. Um, and so I think you know, we, we, we have lots and lots of knowledge. There are lots of people who are hugely knowledgeable about the criminal environment, hugely knowledgeable about criminality generally, but they have no influence on what's going on because what they, the, the knowledge they have lacks, the, lacks that action component that allows police and allows um, decision-makers in the criminal justice system and the crime prevention practitioners to actually go out and do something. In the end, it has to have that sort of action component. Um, but to get to that knowledge, to get to that... That knowledge that actually has that action component to get to intelligence is going to require a huge change in, in, in how we think and value knowledge and intelligence. Um, and, it, you know, initial, uh, I know a number of police departments overseas that have their initial training courses for analysts that run to weeks. And yet, the majority of analysts in the United States have never had any training. Um, we look at decision makers who spend. Uh, You know, for middle-ranking people, when they get promoted in many police departments overseas, they go on a sergeant's course or they go on an inspector's course that can last for weeks to learn the basics of that new role they've taken on. And in the United States, the training is zero. And you uh, go overseas, and if you become a detective, you go to a detective training school. And in the United States, the vast majority of uh, investigators have never had any training. Uh, If they do have an initial training course, it's nothing more than about two weeks, and that's only in the minority of cases. So we have a real, there's a real gap in terms of how we think about educating and, and training and rewarding people in policing. Um, it's a particular problem in the United States. So in terms of, you know, we we don't do enough to train decision makers and we don't do enough to train analysts, and that's a real challenge.
1: And we don't have enough analysts, or we don't have any kind of promotional scale. As I know in the police service of Northern Ireland, they designed a scale that you had a reason to, to stay in the profession once you were trained. You had some goals you could move up in responsibility and training and expertise, but we don't really have that at all here in the United States. No, that's right. So, well, I appreciate you um, coming on the show, Jerry, and I, and I uh, truly admire your work. And, and if you ever want to come back, if you're on any particular subject, please do.
2: Thank you, Debbie. It's been a pleasure.
1: Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.